Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another week, another edition of Daily Kos' The Brief, our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Melissa. I'm here with Carrie Eleveld, and we are going to be talking today about immigration. It is an incredibly complex, difficult subject. It is possibly one of the only things Republicans can run on uh, the last three cycles. I mean, they've obsessed about this topic. And right now, as we're finding, Carrie's been writing about this repeatedly over this last week. You should check out her writings at Daily Coast. But the Republican Party is bankrupt. They are in disarray. They have no clue about what to do. They had this sort of Donald Trump problem. He brought people out, but he didn't bring them out on conservative ideas or conservative principles or conservative anything. He brought them out on bigotry and he brought them out on these almost irrelevant cultural war issues that resonate very strongly with this disaffected corner of America, but really isn't enough to win a national election. And it is bleeding them support, particularly given that the core of the Republican base is older white rural males, and they are literally dying off. And the younger generations are incredibly liberal. They're, they're making me look <laughs> as though I'm, I'm stodgy, old, conservative, old, old dude, right? And, and so culture's evolving. <laughs> the nation's evolving. The Republican Party is not. So, Carrie, you've been really on this beat. You're like, you're like drilling it, right? And, and uh, I've been enjoying your writings on the subject and particularly digging into just how unpopular the Republican Party is, even with Republicans. Isn't that so? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, yesterday I started digging into the numbers that we have available available to us through civics, the civics dashboard, the polling firm that, you know, is is sort of our sister company. And it's amazing what you, you know, the wealth that you can find on there just on the public stuff. Right. There's other stuff, too. But um, anyway, so, you know, at I was civics. looking at com, civics with a Q dot com civics with a Q dot com. So I was looking at it and I was like, whoa. Whoa, like Democrats, the Democratic Party is, you know, popular among 88 percent of Democratic voters, which is a number that you would pretty much expect. Right. Pretty close. Um, Yes, it's pretty standard. But I was looking at the GOP numbers and among Republican voters, the Republican Party is only uh, has a favorable rating from 65 percent of Republican voters and it has a 19 percent unfavorable rating. And it just I just thought, man, this is just, a you know, a, a snapshot of um, what, you know, emblematic of what is plaguing the GOP right now is that they they don't have a leader. They don't have policies, right? They don't have agreed upon policies anymore other than like culture war stuff, but they don't have- Dr. Seuss. You know, yeah, Dr. Seuss. Boy, they get excited about Dr. Seuss, but- Immigration and, you know, not letting uh, youth, you know, trans athletes participate in athletic, in sports, you know, I mean, this ridiculous stuff that, I mean, unfortunately is going to be really ugly in 2022. I mean, it's not- ridiculous in terms of the way they're going to prosecute it. But the idea that, you know, this is what they're going after, but they, they just don't know how to, they have no leader who can really lead the party anymore. I mean, Donald Trump really is, hasn't shown interest in leading the party. No, um, they don't have it. these, right. Tax it. He attacks it and he's attacking McConnell. He's attacking, you know, the House, um, the the Congress people who GOP Congress people who voted to uh, impeach him. And, you know, he's more he's actually clearly more interested in those grievances than he is in making sure that the Republicans retake and regain control of Congress in 2022. Yeah, he um, literally crashed a wedding at his hotel <laughs> To air his grievances. <laughs> he literally yeah. crashed a, hotel, a wedding. But think I, 19%. It, that's one in five Republicans 
do not like the Republican Party. And yeah, there are Democrats who don't like the Democrats, but it's it's a tiny, you know, a lot of them would be like the Bernie, you know, supporters. A lot of them don't even call themselves Democrats, so they're out of that right. pool. But but you're always gonna have people that aren't particularly happy about the direction their party is going. There's only two parties, right? You have countries with dozens of parties. We have two parties. You can't cram everybody's ideology into two parties. That said, 20, 19%, one in five is historically high. And then when, Carrie, when you talk about the lack of, of policy, um, what really came through just recently on a practical level was the battle over the $1.9 trillion uh, American rescue plan, right? Right. All of them voted against it. So at least they got that part right. But they never mounted a cohesive opposition to it because right. they don't have an ideology to oppose yes. it with. Donald exactly. Trump wanted payments to people. Donald Trump wanted, want, you know, a push for for loans to businesses. Everything that was in that in that bill was things that Trump had talked about or had supported. So they really had lost the ability to make a policy argument against it. So they were left to, you know, flailing about socialism, which had zero traction. And it's right. amazing. And you've written about this, Carrie, how popular the American rescue plan has been even amongst Republicans. Right. So there's, so when you, so Pew did, they had a sample pool of like 12,000 voters that they did some polling with. So it's a huge sample, right? And they found that among Republican voters, when you split them into lower income, middle income, excuse me, and upper income, right? The lower, lower income Republicans supported that rescue plan by at, a, at around 63% support. That's so so that's, that's nearly two thirds of lower income Republicans saying, sign me up for this, I'm on board, right? And, and Republicans didn't even know what to do with that. I mean, you saw Mitch McConnell trying to sort of like, you know, say, oh, you know, the, the economy was just starting to fire on all burners before this rescue plan. So he, you know, he's trying to like rob credit uh, from Biden <laughs> yeah, and the Democrats <laughs> while also while also not voting for it at all, not voting for the plan at all. And I think, you know, one of the things that was most, you know, that that really showed us that they made that they're that they were, you know, that they had completely blown their opposition arguments, right? Which there were none. There was no co cohesive argument. Is that the bill got more popular as it went along, and that is just really very unusual for a big, epic, you know, generational. Battle. Yeah, like it's a generational yeah. piece of legislation. Right. That it just kind of sailed through. I mean, all of the, you know, back and forth was among Democrats. It what really are we going to keep in? What are we? And, and, you know, it ultimately ended up I mean, there were some things that we lost that progressives wanted. Minimum wage was one of them. You know, there were some other things. But for the most part, we got to Biden introduced a one point nine trillion dollar bill. He got a one point nine trillion dollar bill and that bill got more and more popular along the way. And that just shows you that Republicans completely missed the boat on that completely. And what were they doing during this debate? They were talking about Dr. Seuss. They were talking about Mr. Potato Head and they were railing against the the the, the flood or the, you know, the wave at, at the border. Uh, there's this this crisis. And and so they've really sort of gone back to that. They feel comfortable with those cultural war issues that really don't resonate with a lot of people. Didn't really win them elections in 26 or uh, uh, 2018 because they really ran hard right. on uh, Salvador and MS-13 gang. On the uh, caravans. How many times caravans. did Donald Trump say caravan and like he went down to the border? I mean, basically, Republicans have been trying to win on this ever since Trump won in 2016. And the first really, really ugly campaign they tried for was the gubernatorial campaign in Virginia in 2017. And they lost that. And then they lost it in the midterms. And then they didn't, once again, it didn't prevail on running on immigration issues in 2020. And the only one who's saying that they can still win on this is Stephen Miller. But, you know, Republicans are so desperate 
Yeah, I mean, this, you know, disgraced White House aide Stephen Miller, who's a total racist and, you know, came up some, with some of the worst policies. But none of his predictions came through about what would, you know, what would work electorally in 2018 and 2020. So, Carrie, let's let's bring in our guests. We're going to do something a little bit different this week than what we usually do. Usually we bring our guests sequentially. But today we decided that we really wanted to dig into the issue of immigration in a more comprehensive way. So we got two experts on immigration, people who, who can really hopefully explain this in a way that everybody understands the issues, the underlying issues and what's at stake and what can be done about them. Our first guest or not our first, because they're both coming out at the same time. But first of all, we have Gabe Ortiz. He is a senior political writer at Daily Coast. He's one of our colleagues and uh, one of the utmost authorities on immigration in this country. And the second is Juan Escalante. He is a DACA recipient who has been at the forefront of immigrant right movements for the past 15 years. He's a social strategist and has spearheaded several campaigns in support of pro-migrant policies. And to start it off, Juan, I'm going to start with you. Your intro talks about you being a DACA recipient. Can you explain what DACA recipient is to, any, so to listeners who may not know what that is? Sure. Well, thank you for having me on. And DACA is uh, short for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And folks may remember this as the so-called executive action that President Barack Obama took out in 2012 to shield DREAMers, which is a subcategory of, of a specific group of immigrants at the time that were essentially vulnerable to deportations. And I'm happy to, you know, uh, go on and, and and break this down as to how essentially the genesis of DACA happened. But the program DACA as a whole is currently protecting me from deportation. It allows me to obtain a driver's license and allows me to work on two-year intervals as long as I pay a fee, uh, submit certain documentation to the government and pass a background check. And I think for the audience, what it's probably most relevant is that actually today, a federal judge had a hearing on the DACA program and its potential future we may get a, he- a ruling on whether the program, according to his view, will stand or it, wh- whether or not he'll declare unconstitutional. But, you know, only time will tell. All I can say is that, you know, Donald Trump ple- pledged to undo this program on day one in his office and Donald Trump came and went and Doc is still here and it will continue to be here. So I'm Doc happy to join you there. all to talk about it. Let me just frame for everybody that that judge, Judge Andrew Hainan, is, you know, a really well-known like anti-immigrant judge in the Fifth Circuit. So, you know, it's quite possible that that's not going to you know, there's not going to be a good outcome there. But this will go. Do you think this will go all the way up potentially to the Supreme Court on? I think so. I mean, my appreciation is that ultimately the administration, well, rather the federal government has, as of today, in federal court switched sides. So for the past four years, the government was essentially, you know, in cahoots with Texas and saying that this program, you know, was blasphemous and that it allowed legals to essentially, you know, get these kind of benefits. And Texas just sat there saying, we just, we just don't want to give them driver's license. And that's the injury that our state is suffering. And you know, not to drag this on, because uh, obviously, like, and I'll point here to to my friend and, and former colleague, Gabe Ortiz, you know, there, there there's just a breadth and giant scope of the amount of lies and the amount of attacks that this program has received for its eight years in existence. And not a single judge in this country has found or taken issue with the DACA program as much as Andrew Hainan down in the Fifth Circuit, as you mentioned, Carrie, has. And, you know, I invite people to essentially become informed about the DACA program. And I think that, unfortunately for, for us, we can't essentially, you know, this, we're talking about a federal judge, not Congress, but it, it does reframe the conversation that Congress right now has a plethora of immigration legislation before it, and it needs to take action immediately. Gabe, you've been covering this issue day in, day out for years. And I admire your fortitude and one you for fighting it because this is this is tough stuff, right? There aren't a lot of victories a lot of time. How did the DACA program survive the Trump years? And uh, and then just kind of a follow up to that is, is why are these why are Republicans and this is for both of you, I guess. Why are Republicans so hell bent on punishing children? And to be clear to the listeners, this targets, not targets, this helps children who were brought here by their parents. They weren't even the, the 
quote, lawbreakers, if you want to use that kind of terminology, they were here at no fault of their own. And Republicans have really gotten it in that they need to punish these former children. Obviously, they've grown up since then. But people who are here, they are Americans. This is the only country that they know. Yet, because their parents brought them in a way that's not authorized, Republicans insist on wanting to punish them. Like, what's the obsession with that? But first question is, how did it even survive the Trump years? I mean, he was hell bent on killing this. Oh, yeah. I mean, count me in among the people who was surprised that DACA survived the Trump presidency, because when he announced the rescission in in September of uh, 2017, um, you know, that was really heartbreaking because we thought that was it. That was really it. There's no way this is going to make it through the Supreme Court if it ever gets there. And I think it made it there and is still here today because of young immigrants like Juan, these activists who kept the program alive by fighting in the streets, through the courts, uh, through sharing their stories. I mean, this is why DACA is one of the most supported policies when you look at the public polling, because they have shared their stories and have won that support from the public. So it's their advocacy that got it to survive all the way to, to here to today, where not only is DACA still in place, it's fully reopened as it was before Donald Trump moved to, to close it in 2017. And, you know, reason why I think Donald Trump uh, and Republicans have been so helpful on trying to to end it is one, I think, because it is an Obama program, and they don't care what the program is. If he's behind it, they want it to end. But also because that's the playbook. Being anti-immigrant is is their their policy. That's their stance, and they have nothing else really to stand behind other than attacking a program like this. When when the the dreamers who did incredible adv- advocacy for themselves during the uh, Obama administration, when they more or less pushed the Obama administration into creating the DACA program. And let's be clear, the Obama administration had dragged its feet for several years saying we don't have the executive authority to do that. And then they did it. And I, I, this is such a good example of how you may as well go ahead and do the thing you want to do and let it play out in the courts because you never know. A lot of smart lawyers in the Obama administration have said this will never sub- survive the legal challenges. And it has so far. Right. Um, But by by pushing the Obama administration, I mean, Obama administration into doing that, they changed the the dream activists changed the paradigm. Right. They changed the norm enough that it was hard to go back to the old way and hopefully it will continue to survive. Um, But I just wonder, you know, I mean, the Republicans are so hell bent on, you know, Going after immigrants. I mean, you got freaking Ted Cruz down there in a bush in Texas, you know, with on the Rio. <laughs> with rifles. Like they're under it, under and like, invasion. Yeah. And like, <laughs> like they're under invasion. I mean, it's just like, it's just, I mean, the guy couldn't be a bigger loser or more of a parody of himself. But, you know, what my, my question is, other than just railing against everything that's happening, other than, other than, you know, railing against, the quote unquote crisis and, you know, railing against migrant children who are seriously sent here under very desperate circumstances. What what are the GOP policies? What are they offering as an alternative? What what is their their supposed plan for this? Because I'm not seeing much from them. You know, Carrie, it, it's it's funny because to me, you know, Ted Cruz was nothing short at than at a mall inside, you know, the rainforest cafe trying to play like a explorer <laughs> out there, you know, like uh, talk about someone who is so disconnected from reality, right. That is not just willing to do this, this stunt, because that's essentially what it is. It's a political stunt designed to continue to spread fear and try to, you know, dehumanize people's people's fear, people's uh, you know, fleeing pe- fear and in 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 trying to seek help and escaping from dangerous conditions, and instead of actually trying to figure out a way forward, in in trying to come to the table and say, you know, my name is Ted Cruz, I'm coming from a border state, and you know, I've seen firsthand, even though it's a political stunt, but I've seen firsthand the suffering of these people. 
I want to be, you know, a leader or a moral leader on this discussion. It's just, they rather just try to essentially poke fun at it and continue to feed the beast that is the far right. And to be honest, I don't think that even if he came up with a solution, and if I'm not even just talking about, you know, either senator from Texas, I'm talking about the Republican Party as a whole, even if they came up with a solution right now, it's not a solution that is grounded on reality. It's a solution that's grounded on their terms and that is would more than anything be grounded on essentially the rhetoric of Stephen Miller and the Donald and, and Donald Trump to try to shift the conversation that way. And you know, I, for 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 the listeners out there, you know, I'm originally from Florida. I was born and raised in Caracas, Venezuela. I moved to Florida, lived there for you know uh, 18 of the 20 years I've been in this country. And I gotta tell you, e- even the senators from Florida are 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 playing into this so far much that there's a freshman representative out in. Uh, the Florida Congressional District 27, Maria Elvira Salazar, former journalist for a major newscast company in Univision and Telemundo. And, you know, she knows how to sell this program. She put forth a plan called Dignity, this, this so-called Dignity Plan, which is essentially nothing short of a, of a wish list that, that is conjured up by Stephen Miller, who basically gave her a nod and a wink after meeting with her. And it's all essentially border restriction. And then as she sold it, and she spoke about this on a, on a, on a, on a cable Spanish language TV interview, is that, well, we're not talking about legalizing anybody. Maybe if they wanted, after like 13 plus years of having a temporary status in this country, I guess we can talk about it then, but nobody would receive um, you know, any sort of like immigration benefits or anything like that, despite how long they lived in this country. And we're talking about millions of people like myself, like my parents, who are essentially, you know, our friends, our neighbors, taxpayers, you name it, you know, what, what the studies and the polls show are two things. Immigration is good for this country and an overwhelming majority of America vote of American voters on both sides of the aisle support Congress right now taking bold steps on immigration. So where's the dignity part of the <laughs> Dignity Act? <laughs> so none, not even pretending. Yeah. There's not Whatsoever. even a pretense of that. Um, so, you know, speaking of, ahead, of, Ted, of Ted Cruz, you know, I was thinking of some of the, the many times he didn't show up at the border, you know, in the previous four years. And when in the middle of the family separation crisis, um, I, I had totally forgotten that Democrats had proposed a, a bill to stop these separations. Ted Cruz supported Donald Trump on that at the very, very beginning and backtracked from that only because the the public backlash to it got so intense uh, to it that he had to sort of change his position. Ted Cruz's response to that was to, to introduce a bill that would keep families jailed together. I mean, this was his, his humane response. So even when they do try to propose something, it's something as indecent as saying, well, we're not going to separate you. We'll just keep you locked up together. I mean, there's, there's, there's the dignity right there. Yeah. Keep keep families jailed together is the dignity from the Republican Party. Uh, Juan, you know, you talked about the, the temporary status, and I think that's a that's a point that we shouldn't forget here. Your status right now is temporary. There's no permanent solution. And a lot of it depends on on what the Supreme Court does, if it even main, if you can even continue that temporary solution. But only who who can make that a permanent? That's a congressional question, correct? That's correct. And, you know, I think there's obviously a lot of people watching every move that the current administration is making, rightfully so. I think everybody should be involved in our government uh, at all levels and, and, you know, hold people in power accountable, whether Democrats or Republicans. And what, when it comes down to essentially what the Biden administration is doing is trying to essentially roll the DACA program into a rulemaking process you know, while it's, you know, navigating the legal system, you know, through the judiciary right now in terms of whether or not, you know, Judge Hainan will ultimately, you know, try to terminate the program outright, which we have seen him do in the past. I think folks who, again, may have been watching the immigration issue closely, we're talking about the same judge that basically, for all intents and purposes, killed an Obama proposal similar to DACA, but it was called DAPA, with a P instead of a C. And what that program did is that would have allowed it, allowed, and I want to make this clear, it will have allowed the parents of U.S. citizen children and legal permanent residents, meaning those who had a green card, 
have the same type of benefits that I currently have to protect me from deportation for having a driver's license, having a work permit. And this judge was basically the judge that outright stopped that in tracks. So for me, it's important, you know, like you said, Marcos, which was that Congress has the authority right now to essentially pass bills and send one to the president to make sure that he fulfills his promise of bringing as many people out of the shadows and in, in, into a normal legal citizenship bound status that, you know, he can celebrate and, you know, take another pen and cross another item out of his list. I think that the, there's some political will out there, but unfortunately what we're seeing is essentially excuses from, you know, uh, mem Republican members of Congress. We're seeing, you know, relics of the past and, uh, like the like the filibuster stand in the way. And it, I think that if we're going to go bold and we're going to take decisive action and truly transform this country into a better and more inclusive nation for all, then we need to do this right now and not wait until, you know, God forbids any sort of, you know, midterm election or, or, or any surprises that come around. We need decisive so issues right now. Right. The House just passed a a good bill on that. Right. And Gabe, you've been following this, haven't you? What are its chances in the Senate? What, what is it? Is it the same Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema story that we have to deal with with everybody, or are there other factors at play? That that's the American uh, Dream and Promise Act that just passed this month. Um, it's actually the second Congress in a row that this passed because it also passed in uh, 2019. But because of the of Mitch McConnell's you know grip on the Senate at that point, it stalled. Um, the difference now is that we do have the Senate. You know, even if it's a really slim majority, we've got the Senate. Uh, but it's interesting uh, you mentioned about support there because Dick Durbin, who has for basically 20 years now been introducing the DREAM Act in the Senate, um, he said he thought he was close to getting enough Republican support to overcome a filibuster in... Oh, in, so uh, he, but that's a yeah, and that's a that's a very you know big maybe, and we know how Republicans are. They could you know do the Lucy football thing, and yeah. and they could go you know. One theory that I've heard that Republicans are maybe going to go easy on the Dream Act as a way to getting Democrats to back down from the filibuster threat. You know whether Dream I'll Act. Take over, it. <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if, if Don't Dream use the filibuster to back down on filibuster reform. Okay. Well, there's still so many other pieces of legislation. Of you know, the legalization sure. for for the whole undocumented population and Voting Rights Act. Uh, you know, gun reform legislation. Well, we still yeah, have DC, to you know uh, yeah. do some sort of reform. So if we can pass Dream Act, you know, with more than sixty votes, great. But we still have so much other work that's left to do too. I, I pass the Dream say, Act, then reform the filibuster. <laughs> I, so I, I hate to, this is may not be popular. It's so hard for me to imagine Senate Republicans, you know, and uh, joining on that bill. And then, and then, you know, I think it would be smart. Let me, I have so many thoughts going through my head right now. Let me just say, so without going into a whole lot of detail about Donald Trump, but Donald Trump did make an inroads in South Florida and South Texas with Latinos, with Latino voters. Right. Um, and and, you know, it's it's I can't believe the political malpractice of Republican Party right now, not trying to build on that success in order to bring people into their tent they're in instead they got the ted cruises of the world right but they could be actually trying to build on some of that success now you know i mean there's different reasons for that success and all, all kinds of things but anyway it's so hard for me to imagine that senate republicans are going to do what would be the politically smart thing which is to you know say hey we helped pass this enormously popular piece of legislation. And, um, but I wonder, so I wonder if you guys think, and maybe Juan in particular, if you think in it, that the Biden administration is pressing as forcefully as they can, I mean, they have, they've done some good things, right? Which is they immediately sent a comprehensive immigration bill to Congress on day one that had legals, a, a pathway to citizenship in it, 
that was just a you know we're not going to debate this this is just in the bill um it had it went had had uh money that it was going to send back to um some of the, some of the central american countries that have you know that that struggle in order to try and you know get at some of the issues for this migration um this epic migration but and so they did some good things but i just wonder from an advocacy standpoint do you think the Biden administration is doing everything that it can? And are you are you satisfied as an advocate with where the Biden administration is right now? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll break that into two parts, right? We have what the Biden administration as, as, as the executive has done and what is prompting Congress to do. You're right. There is essentially the American Citizenship Act of 2021, which is sitting in Congress right now. And this is a, like a big comprehensive bill that the Biden administration promised to deliver on day one. Promise made, promise kept. It's there in Congress. Congress can take it up and figure out what is what it's doing. As, as Gabe mentioned, there's a couple of other bills. We have the Farm Workforce Modernization Act also passed in the House this week, which will grant citizen a pathway to a citizenship for millions of farm workers out there. The, the Dream and Promise Act, we have the Dream Act, we have a bunch of things out there. And I think it's up to Congress to figure out a path forward and for the administration to continue to press forward on those things, which I, I believe they're doing privately and publicly. Now, I will say this, and this is probably like this, like the strongest break of what we just left with Donald Trump and where we are with, with, with uh, current President Biden and, and Vice President Harris, which is Donald Trump went to Florida, sent... Mike Pence and a slew of Republicans down there to tell the Venezuelans, my community, the Venezuelan American community, that if Joe Biden won, that socialism will unleash on this country, that, you know, it will be Hugo Chavez, but not like, you know, reincarnated in Joe Biden. And guess what? We're, we're almost through the first 100 days and that still hasn't happened. A, but it's weird. The, the, and I think for the, for, for what's particular for the audience that may not be familiar with the intricacies of this they basically sold so much misinformation and so many lies to that community that they promised the world this if you vote for Donald Trump, all of your problems are gonna go away. We're gonna take back Venezuela and install democracy. That did not happen. In fact, under MPP, the Migration Protection Protocols or Stay in Mexico program, they denied asylum to Venezuelans who made the journey through Mexico or to Mexico and came to our border and asked for asylum, where was Marco Rubio? Where were the Republicans in Florida asking, hey, like we're, we're, we're going to welcome these people? Nothing. And for four years, that was essentially the tune. In the first 60 days of this administration, Joe Biden took his pen and said, you know what, we're going to give TPS a well-established program that would essentially afford certain protections from deportation, a driver's license, a work permit to you know, hundreds of thousands that's of people. Temporary who are protected status. Yeah, that's temporary protected yeah. status. Uh, and, and Venezuelans, exactly. And that's being rolled out. Venezuelans, right now, if you if you're listening to this and if you have a family member, they have until September 5th, I believe, to apply to that program. My parents, who have lived in this country for 20 years, are actually in the process of applying. And thanks to this Biden policy, they will be for the first time in 20 years be able to go out, get in their car and drive safely to the pharmacy, to the market, or take a walk in the park without fearing that someone's gonna look over their shoulder and ask them for the papers. Well, one of the things that I, I, people don't seem to realize, particularly certain um, marginalized communities, is that Republicans will never will never see you as one of their own. And I think we're seeing this right now with, with the uh, anti-Asian hate, right? Where Asians were considered the quote, good minority. And they, you know, they, their families aren't breaking up and they follow the rules and they go to school and blah, blah, blah. And now we're finding out none of that mattered. They're still othered. Right. And this same thing with the Jewish community, you can go on people, they love to other. And so I guess my question, uh, Juan is, so the Venezuelans thought they were like in a pal with Donald Trump and, and also not them, but Nicaraguans and, and Cubans too. I mean, it's early. It's really early. But do you think that those communities are locked in as Republican constituencies now or are they still swingy enough, given if, if Democrats and Biden deliver uh, things that is important to those communities? And it's also I'll rope in so that so South Texan border counties, too, as well, if you feel comfortable commenting on yeah. that. Yeah. We're you all know, so different. Uh, People don't realize we're Latinos, but, you know, we gave <laughs> your Mexican yeah. Juan, Juan, you're you're uh, uh, said uh, Venezuelan. Uh, yeah. 
I'm Salvadoran, right? We're different. <laughs> just, to, yeah. just, to, just so people understand, the South, you know, the South Florida uh, constituents we're talking about, Latino constituents, it's a heavy Cuban population down there, which is much more conservative and pro-Republican in nature. And in uh, Texas, the South Texas constituency is more, I think, Mexican, Mexican. yeah, uh, yeah Mexican American. So, so I just to distinguish for people that we're talking about very different populations here. But please go ahead, Juan. I, I yeah, yeah, and I don't want, I don't want. Juan why do you speak, yeah. up, you know, for people that you don't feel comfortable speaking of? Because everybody loves us into well, one freaking bucket. I don't, I'm not going to make that mistake, but maybe, you know, you're, you're not wrong. But, you know, I, I will take this opportunity to make two, two, two very specific points is that, you know, in terms of the othering, you know, at the top of the program, we talked about this, you know, proposal, you know, the dignity proposal by Maria Elvira Salazar from Florida District 27th. Right. And there's a quote out back here to that meeting between you know, congressional Republicans and 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 Stephen Miller and some of the former uh, you know enforcers of Donald Trump's my immigration policies. And there's a there's a quote here that's reported in Politico, and I'm I'm looking at it in front of my computer. It's dated February 26th of 2021, where she says to Stephen Miller, "quote I told him that the GOP needs to attra- attract the Browns." End quote. <laughs> and What's when whoa. you have a member of Congress who is, you know, of his, you know, who, who identifies as Latina, right? And essentially it's used that kind of language to speak to her colleagues. It's not being done as a favor. It's actually trying to, to again, perpetuate this narrative of furthering out the othering narrative about that community. And when it comes down to South Florida, I think that there, there's an argument there in terms of what happened in the 2020 elections should have should be a wake up call for local outreach donors and everybody else who cares about our democracy. And we saw this as far as, you know, the gubernatorial uh, race with Andrew Gillum, you know, where Ron DeSantis became the governor of Florida, said the investment in the infrastructure in the state of Florida. Yeah, it costs money because it's a big state, but the investment needs to be made. You need to reach people where they are. You need to be reach people in their language and you need to make those investments because otherwise what you just mentioned, Carrie, is going to come true. And I'm not saying that it's going to be locked in because of policy. I'm not going to say that it's going to be locked in because of one thing or the other. I'm saying because you may do everything on a checklist, but if you don't do the outreach to those people and sell it and remind them who gave you this, who made TPS possible, who made DACA possible, the answer is clear. It wasn't the Republican Party. It was President Obama who made DACA possible. It's, pre- it's President Joe Biden who's defending DACA right now today in court. It's President Biden who's depend- defending the TPS and expanding it. And those things need to be said. So, and and what, it, what's interesting is that it, it seems like Republicans sort of like will sometimes start making like slight attempts. Like remember when Reince Priebus after the 2012 election, he authored that, that GOP autopsy report where he said, you know, if, if, if Latinos, I think he used the word Hispanics, if Hispanics hear that we don't want them in this country, they will stop listening to us, meaning the Republican Party. So it seemed like they sort of recognized that something had to happen, and then, but then they just got pulled back by that really overtly racist, you know, anti-immigrant base that that basically controls the party. And then they end up with, you know, Donald Trump as the nominee the next time around. One more so, thing on that, Gabe, because what you just said just, just sparked something else is that when we're talking about what's happening today, right, the Republican Party and, and, and Marcos and Kerry, you, you, you essentially, you know, talked about what's happening at the border. Instead of going and playing, you know, Explorer and going outside of your district and state, why is Maria Vieira you know, Salazar and Carlos Jimenez, two uh, Republicans, uh, members of Congress from South Florida, going to the border to repeat the anti-immigrant talking points instead of working in their community and essentially standing up right now, you know, TPS outreach clinics, helping people file their paperwork, outreaching to that community instead of going and essentially perpetuating, you know, the, the, the hatred that we see out there. All I can say is, and, and I'm happy to hand it off again, is that all we know, all that I can draw conclusions from is that 
all these members of Congress who have been to the border, especially those who in the middle of the night, have no longer excuse not to get things done. Because if you can go to the border at 3 a.m. in the morning or middle of the night, then you can go to Congress and start working on immigration solutions immediately. So, Juan, on that on that point, though, you asked, like, why are they doing it? Do we actually know why those two Latino South Florida Republicans are trying are, are just feeding into that anti-immigrant? Like, they don't need to be there. Why are they doing it? Do you I know? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think it's their way, you know, not their way, but I think it's the way that leadership, you know, if if the leader in, you know, Kevin McCarthy is offering you a field trip to the border, number oh, one, you probably are not going to say no. But number two, I think it's a very concerted and strategic effort to use them and say, you know, we're a diverse crowd. Look at these Latinos that we brought here to the border with us who can essentially, this is the next generation of the Republican Party. And I just, in good conscience, as a, as a public servant and as an elected official, that if I were in their shoes, I would say, you know, you know, minority leader, I'm not going to go to that because it goes against my constituency. Also, the, like the state of Florida is nowhere near the Texas border. And I'm oh, sorry, elect- like, I'm just not going to go there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's elected officials true. are <laughs> <laughs> elected officials can always just they always have an excuse if they don't want to show up next to somebody. Right. You know, they have a family emergency. They, they don't really need to go. So they're there because they want to be there. Let's, yeah. Go ahead. Grace. Well, let's talk for a second, because I think we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about what's actually happening there. We've talked a lot about that Republican posturing. But what is I mean, you know, a lot of the Washington media wants to paint what's happening at the border as a crisis. The you know, the White House says this is not a crisis. I think the I think President Biden did quite a good job at his press conference last week of really humanizing this issue and talking about. Look, you know, people you know, people sitting around a table don't look at each other, you know, if they're in some Central American country and say, hey, I got a great idea. Let's just, you know, sell everything we own and give all our money to a coyote so that they can, you know, take our children up to, you know, the, you know, the United States of America. And he, what he's essentially saying is, look, this is very obviously incredibly desperate situations that people feel like they're fleeing violence. There's no opportunity for them. They would never do this otherwise. No one would ever put their, you know, their children through that if they didn't think they had an opportunity at a better life on the other side. But I think we need to understand, is there a crisis there? And if, if, if Juan or Gabe, either one of you would put in context for us, and for the listeners, what is happening um, at the border right now with the migrant children in the surge? Uh, sure, I, I can I can offer a couple words. Um, I think you know, speaking of of uh, you know these wording that you're hearing, uh, you know, surge, uh, flood. You know, I, I think a lot of that language is really dehumanizing. First of all, that we're seeing in the mainstream reporting, we always have to remember that these are our children. So there is an urgency there because they are children and they're already really vulnerable when they come to our country and even more so because they're coming without a parent. You know, they might be coming with a sibling, perhaps an an older relative, but because it's without a parent, they're already missing someone who uh, who, who would be an advocate for them in, in, in normal circumstances. And there's an urgency because there are many children who are stuck in these board facilities, um, thousands of children, many of them past the three-day limit uh, because of the uh, uh, capacity limits at HHS licensed facilities. You know, there's general agreement that these board facilities are not fit for, for children, I personally think they're not really fit for adults either, but the danger is that there are many children who are are stuck um, in these facilities because they cannot be transferred to HHS uh, quick enough. So uh, I, I think that uh, you know uh, above what all, what does what does transferring to HHS mean? Just to let people understand. It, you know, when a child arrives to the border um, without a parent, the, I guess the normal process is that they're supposed to be transferred from board facilities to a health and human services uh, licensed facility within as soon as possible, but within three days. And at that point is where they would be connected with a sponsor who is usually a relative that's already here. Sometimes it's even a parent. Um, and so the goal is that that happens as soon as possible. But because of those capacity limits, we're seeing all these children who are stuck in, in these board facilities. 
Is it a crisis in the sense that Republicans are trying to make it out? Clearly, every individual that has made that desperate journey is in a own personal crisis. I don't think anybody can can uh, argue that. But is it a crisis in the sense that America is under assault, as Fox News would probably say? Children are not uh, a surge. They are not a siege. They are children. And what they're doing in asking for asylum is 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 the law. Asylum is the law. And it was only under Donald Trump that asylum somehow became, uh, you know, was no longer policy. <laughs> yeah. What what kind of numbers, Juan, what kind of numbers are we looking at here? And if I remember correctly, I think one of uh, uh, Biden administration officials said, look, and it may have been President Biden himself. Look, there's an uptick in migrant uh, children coming to the U.S. basically every spring. Um, so, you know, I, I just wonder, do you what how does this look in, ter- in terms of past trends um, of similar situations? Well, you know, there's no denying that we have seasonal migration and that these patterns have, ex- like, we're not talking about something new, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. And, you know, I guess what, what Gabe and Marcos were essentially exchanging right now is that when you have an administration, and I'm talking about the Trump administration, that basically takes issue with asylum policy and does everything in its power, and I mean from firing officials to trying to halt the process to outlining policies that keep people in tents outside of uh, point, ports of entry, you will have essentially, and, and, and I think that it's, it sometimes is, 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 is confusing to me or not confusing, but inc- incredible to me that, you know, we forget that we were dealing with an administration that did not admit that it lost the election immediately and withheld the ability for the hiring of certain government officials to start doing their work from the moment that the election results were announced, didn't concede, and the Biden administration not only started without any sort of personnel at the Department of Home Security that was cleared, trained, and knowledgeable about immigration-related issues as it pertains to the border and asylum, but it also started behind we're talking about an administration that's two two months old. We're not, you know, it takes time to get all that clearance and all that kind of stuff. Am I making excuses? I don't think so, because if you're behind and the Trump administration put these roadblocks out there to try to slow the rollout of policies that could have aided the, the, the Biden administration, then it did so successfully. And it's nothing else. It's inflating the, 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 the situation that we're seeing out here. And just to kind of even bring it home even further, what we're what Gabe mentioned is that we're talking about kids. If a child came to your door, and if you lived in an apartment complex or if you lived in a neighborhood, I don't care where you live, but if a child came knocking on your door and said, I can't find my parents, or I just fled a very dangerous situation without my parents, can you help me? Your first response should not be slamming the door in the face of the child and saying, Sorry, kid, beat it. It should be like, oh my God, like. Who are you? How can I help you? What's your name? And then figure out a process to essentially put that child in safe, considerate hands and figure out how to remedy from there. Because you may not have all the answers yourself, but there are systems of government that do. And as we know, yeah. you know, everything that's being done is to essentially undermine that narrative that we're trying to be a productive and compassionate nation who understands what the what the problem is what the root of the problem is, and now we're trying to find solutions as we're trying to navigate these waters. Yeah, it would be nice if the QAnon crowd found the real children that need to be saved. Right? <laughs> They're not hiding in the basement of a of a pizzeria in Washington D.C. So I, I we're would almost a baby away from those children, though. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <Sorry. Yeah. laughs> No, Gabe, you're absolutely right. I don't know what I'm thinking. (laughs) Uh, So we're actually um, almost out of time. So I'd like to ask both you, Juan and Gabe, uh, starting with you, Juan, um, we like to give people things to do, what actions they can take to help move things along. And and so uh, this is your chance, Juan, to to pitch what what you think people should be doing um, to make the situation better. Yeah. You know, it's no secret to me that a lot of the folks uh, over the Daily Coast community are very politically savvy. Obviously, if you're watching this, you know, you're a big fan of, of Daily Coast as much as I am. And I, I got to tell you, tomorrow we'll see President Biden go to Philly um, and essentially speak about the, his Build Back Better program. It's, 
he going to talk about immigration? I have no idea. But what I would say to the people watching is that you can literally do what we have known to be true for the past decade and, and further. Call your member of Congress, specifically your senator, and say, I need, legis I need to see legislation that builds a pathway to legalization for the dreamers, the TPS holders, the essential workers, the immigrants who make this country work in the second recovery package. Because we know that even if Senator Durbin is confident that there may be 60 votes in there, there are only 60 votes until those buttons are pressed and we have 60 votes on the record. Because yeah, no the other it. thing that could happen, mm -hmm. and I know that we started you know, this program talking about Marco Rubio and I just wanna bring it back around. Marco Rubio told the mothers of dreamers, don't worry about me, I'm gonna vote for immigration legislation, worry about my colleagues and I'll make sure that I vote right there. We have that on videos on YouTube, nothing that I'm making up. And what did he do? He turned around, voted against his own bill back in 2013. So against I just want to make bill. sure. Exactly. <laughs> his his own immigration bill. Against his own bill and against what his mother told him to do. <laughs> yeah. So I know that Gabe, you know, has also written extensively about this. But for me, the clear thing right now is that we have an opportunity to attach legislation to an incredibly important piece of legislation that is going to bring relief to millions of Americans who need it as we rebuild and emerge from the COVID-19 crisis. But it should not exclude by any means the frontline workers who are undocumented, the dreamers who have put their health risk and, and risk their lives to work in the hospitals or in essential jobs, TPS holders, farm workers who have continued to pick crops day and night, sometimes without PPE whatsoever. And those people need to be included. So if you are calling members of Congress about the about the second package to build back better this country, I, I implore you, I am asking you right now to make sure that you ask your Senator to make sure that they include bills and legislation that build a pathway to citizenship for millions of immigrants in that bill as well. Gabe, your turn. I, I would piggyback on what Juan just said. Uh, it's so important that we take on and, and do an overhaul and reform our immigration system so that we can, first of all, protect the asylum system that's been decimated over the last couple of years and create more legal pathways for families so they don't have to take these dangerous journeys and risk their lives and drown in, in, in the Rio Grande as a child did just a, a couple of days ago. Um, I think we also really have to pressure our legislators and, and, the, and President Biden to move away from this, this uh, policy of throwing billions at agencies like ICE and CBP and the wall and instead use that money to create a better, more humane system where, where we treat children with, with dignity and humanity and the way we would want our own loved ones to be treated. Juan Escalante, Gabe Ortiz, we're really privileged and honored to have taken so much of your time today to dis discuss these issues. I, I thought this show was absolutely fantastic. So thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Happy thank to be here. Both. Thanks. Carrie, what's your, do you have any big takeaways? Well, I've, I've always got something to say. <laughs> it's a question of whether it's worthwhile or not. No, I, I mean, just for anybody who's in their head thinking, well, you know, Juan's talking about adding something into an infrastructure bill that is an infrastructure. That is absolutely infrastructure. It's what people in, in many different, you know, uh, facets call human infrastructure, inventing in, in, investing in human infrastructure. And, you know, these farm workers, along with many other people who've put their lives on the line, the frontline workers, and whatever they have they have provided our food for the last for the last year where Literally. many of us yeah. i mean i was privileged enough to stay home most of the time and you know and and we wouldn't have eaten without them so yeah. you know th this is vital human infrastructure and um, deserves to be in that bill and it's and you know, there's only so many bills that we're going to get through this Congress, uh, given where we are. So 
um, that that's one thing. The other thing that just amazes me is just how much of a backlog of things you know, need to be done on immigration. And that is the fault entirely of the Republican Party. And, you know, they, they the Senate passed a bipartisan bill in, uh, was it 2012 or 2013? Yeah, and, and, and John Boehner, who was Speaker of the House at that point, Republican Speaker, refused to put it on the floor for a vote, and it had the votes to pass. It's just that the, a majority of his caucus didn't want him to do it. And if they had done that, Republicans could have claimed partial victory there and said, hey, all, we're just, you, yeah, you know, they, the they could have been right. They could have been playing, you know, making a play for immigrant The Republican House for, passed. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And they didn't. And 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 the votes were there. That's what's so frustrating about it. And I actually saw John Boehner say, you know, one of the things I regret most, I can't remember if he said this directly or someone, but, you know, it, not putting that bill on the floor. Well, sorry, buddy. Like you had your freaking chance and you totally blew it. And instead, you know what you remember for? Nothing. They got nothing done, nothing under his leadership. And then he retired because, you know, he couldn't control that caucus. Anyway, I'm still furious over it if you, you know. No, it's a good reason to be furious. I'm always furious that Repu- it's always it's never Democrats who go like, I regret having done not pushed for something great. Right. It's always Republicans like Lee Atwater, like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have run those racist campaigns. Well, too late, too late. Yeah. Go to the grave yeah. with that on your conscience. You know what struck out to me the, the most was was when Juan was talking about how do you see children in desperate need knocking on the door and your response is to slam the door on their face. And it sort of it sort of reminds me of this viral video of the of the Asian woman being assaulted in New York City and the doorman just you know at this hotel or I don't know building closest the door. Like you do not close the door on people in need and for Republicans to talk about abortion and saving children and the babies, but then be so viciously anti helping people, uh, children after they're born in so many different examples, right. From, you know, assistance to single mothers to, to this really shows just how cruel they are and how abortion really has never been an issue, not to switch gears or anything, but it's never been about children. It's been about controlling women's sexuality, right? Because if it came to helping kids, if they said, have those children, but we're going we're gonna to make sure they're taken care of because children yeah. are precious, then I might disagree still, but I could at least see some logic to it. But there's no, right. there's no, it's never been about kids with them. And that to me is, is what's painful is that this Republican desire to punish children, to punish now adults who came as children who know no other country than this one and have endured, you know, challenges that some of these Republicans couldn't stand the bear. They can't even wear a mask, carry. How mm-hmm. could they actually handle thousand mile journey with a coyote through inhospitable terrain and all manners of, of atrocities and then crossing the river and then getting through law enforcement and then being in a country where you don't speak the language, where you don't know the culture, trying to make your life, they, they wouldn't last 20 seconds. This is this is one place where I thought President Biden in his press conference. I mean, I you know, he had President Biden, of course, last is, held his first press conference with the media last week. It was much anticipated. And then everybody was like, oh, he paused one time and it was horrible. So, you know, I, I, I wrote a piece and it was titled Joe Biden wiped the floor with Republicans during his first press conference. And I really think he did. I really think he wiped floor with them. And I, I, I'm happy to say when I think we're sucking wind and I think he, he really put the screws to him. But one of the things he did so well was humanize this situation. I talked about it earlier. And one thing he said about the migrant children is, you know, what you're talking about is supposedly these migrant children get here, they're on the other side of the border, they're hungry, they have no way back, and you want me to turn my back on them, to close the doors. I'm paraphrasing here. He said, that is something I will never do. I will never do. And I say, amen. 
we're never doing that. We should have never, we should never do that to any kid who shows up at the border and is in a desperate situation, uh, oftentimes without their parents. We should never, ever, ever do that. We have the resources to take care of those kids and to figure out how they can live a better life. Carrie, amen. That's all the time we have today. That was, I can, that was kind of an amazing episode. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little, you know, uh, a little emotionally. I know, me too. I'm it. sorry. You know, I got these eyes and you can just see them well up. You know, I'm kind, of a, <laughs> yeah. kind of a crier. I'm kind of a crier. So anyway. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening. Thanks to our guest, uh, Gabe Ortiz of Daily Coast and Juan Escalante, who's a dreamer. He's at forward.us, fwd.us. Thanks to our producer, Walter Einenkelt. Thank, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in and listening. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. Thank you so much for joining us. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. See you next week. <laughs>